anybody in your congregation, then I'll definitely, I'll shave it off. And I never had a problem. And uh, I, I never called Pastor Springer, but I was glad when I got here he had a beard and Brother Forrest has a beard and other men, so I'm not really too worried about it. And so you say, well, I think it looks ugly on you. You ought to see me without it. You would say, grow it back. <laughs> Romans chapter number 6. What I'm going to preach tonight really is probably one of the most difficult messages that I, that I preach, and not because really of the doctrine. It is a little bit technical. We'll see in just a moment, but because of what it demands. And uh, let's look at Romans chapter 6. I'll begin reading in verse number 1. The Bible says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Understood answer? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin." For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead. Would you bow with me please for prayer? Our Father, we come to you again in prayer tonight. And Lord, I just pray, I just pray and ask you for help tonight. I pray that you'd help uh, help me to preach this clearly and concisely, and I pray that the truth would be applied to our hearts. And Lord, I, I just pray that you would work. I pray that you'd continue to uh, work in these services and work in our hearts. And I pray that, Lord, you'd help us just to obey, uh, Lord, when you speak to us, whether we understand or not. And I'm thankful for every person that's made uh, made it a point just to try to make it out tonight. I pray that you'd bless them. I pray that you'd help my wife as she teaches those children. And I pray that you'd show those children their need for Christ, and Lord, show us our need for you, and I pray that you would bless now our next few moments as we're in the Bible tonight, and I thank you for all that you do, and I thank you in Jesus' name, amen. A couple of years ago, I kind of took up a little hobby. I don't really play golf. I'm not against golf, but I'd rather do other things. I'd rather go fishing. Uh, about four years ago, my uncle invited me to go backpacking. Now, how many of you like to go hiking? Anybody like to go hiking? Now, I've been hiking before. Uh, backpacking is a little different than just hiking. Backpacking is when you're going in to the wilderness and you're not coming back out for a little while. You're going to have everything that you need on your back to sleep and to cook and to eat with and to take care of all your needs. And so uh, I enjoy doing that. I enjoy hiking on the Appalachian Trail. And uh, and just a little while back, we were on the Appalachian Trail and we were on, on the trail in Georgia for about maybe 40 miles. You say, boy, that's a long way to hike. Well, the trail's only 2,200 miles long. It starts in Springer Mountain, Georgia, and it ends in Maine. It's really quite a phenomenon. It's a highway 
in the wilderness. And so my uncle, who is in his 60s, he's in really good shape. We had been backpacking for about three days. We were close to 40 miles. And, and I'll tell you, we're heading up this hill. We're heading up Blood Mountain, Georgia. And, uh, and it's just killing me. And I'm just having a hard time. And I'm wheezing. And, and uh, my, my chest feels like it's about to explode. And, uh, and they say it's supposed to feel, feel that way. But, uh, but your body's really uh, working really hard. And I saw a gentleman. I first saw a young lady coming up the trail. And, uh, and the etiquette is, if you're going downhill and they're coming uphill, and I, I think we were going down, then you just kind of step out of the way and let the person that's working the hardest have the right of way. And so we step aside and she goes by and she just kind of waves and she goes her way. And then about three or four minutes later, another person's coming up the trail. And, uh, and I'm thinking maybe this guy is a through hiker. Now, now a through hiker, that's the term given to people that are hiking the Appalachian Trail and they're hiking the whole thing. And, and most people will leave in late February or early March, they'll leave in Georgia, just, just a few hours from here, and they'll start their trek north, and they'll start at the end of February or early March, and the idea is they'll get to Maine before cold weather sets in in Maine. It takes six to eight months, sometimes a little bit longer, to hike that trail all the way through. Thousands of people do it every year, at least start to do it. I don't think that many finish, but they start. And so this person's come in, and I know you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but I could tell by his gear and, and just by kind of the way he was carrying himself, he was probably through hiking, and he was actually coming from the north, heading south, and uh, I stepped out of his way, and uh, I said, how you doing, man, how you doing? He goes, living the life, living the life. And I thought about that. Well, I've only been doing this for three and a half days, and it's fun for three and a half days, but you know what the greatest thing about backpacking is? Deprivation. I mean, you know, you know where you sleep when you go backpacking? You, you sleep on the ground. Now, you can sleep in a hammock, you know, if you want to carry, carry all that glitch, you know, to keep you comfortable. And I've done that before, too. And, and, uh, but you sleep on the ground, and generally it's a little cool, and even in the best times of year, and, and, and it's pretty nice. And, and, uh, and, and backpacking, though, backpacking is not camping. So get this romantic ad- idea out of your head about you know, having a big fire and a chair to warm yourself. There's none of that, you know. And so a lot of times, by the time you camp in the evening up on the Appalachian Trail, when the sun goes down, the temperature drops, and the wind is like a vortex coming across those passes is what they call it. And if you, if you can build a fire, boy, you must have been a really good Boy Scout because that wind's blowing about 40 miles an hour. And so you really spend the most of the night trying to figure out how you're going to survive until daylight. And so this guy's coming, and he goes, living the life, man, living the life. And I'm thinking, I don't know about that. Sleeping on the ground, you know, every night. I can do it for four or five nights, but six months? Come on. Now, do you know what most, most backpackers eat when they're hiking the Appalachian Trail? They eat things like ramen noodles. How many of you know what a ramen noodle is? Most of you do. They're really, really pretty good. And uh, my kids love them. I have an eight-year-old. He would love to eat ramen every single day. But backpackers eat ramen. You know why they eat ramen? They're cheap and they're light. That's exactly right. Because ounce of, pounds equals ounces and ounces equals pain. And so you got something easy to make. All you got to do is heat up some water, throw it up the, in there. In a few minutes, you know, you got at least something to eat. And so you just kind of put the picture together. You're sleeping on the ground every night. You're trying to survive, you know, until sun comes up, you're eating snacks, and your main meal of the day is ramen noodles. In reality, you know what you're doing, you're living in poverty. And, uh, and some of us know what that's like, but I'm thinking, I don't know if this is living the life or not. But I started thinking about that in regards to the Christian life 
a lot of us are trying to live the Christian life. And tonight what I'm going to preach to you, it will be a game changer for your spiritual life if I can communicate it clear enough and you can grasp it. But I just want to encourage you with this thought. The Christian life was never meant for you and I to live. Matter of fact, it's impossible for you and I to live the Christian life. You say, what are you talking about, Brother Thomas? Well, that's the essence of Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 7 and Galatians chapter 5 and other places in the New Testament. And we're just going to break this passage down here. And, uh, and I want you to get the context. Now, back another chapter in chapter 5 and verse 1, Paul starts out and he says, Therefore being justified by church membership. Is that what it says? By your baptism. By your being a good person. No, it doesn't say that. It says, therefore being justified by what? Faith. And of course he's talking to believers here, people, uh, Roman believers. And he says, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If there was some other way to gain peace with God other than the death of his son, I'm sure God would have went that way, but there's only one way to have peace with God, and that's through the wrath that he poured out on his dear son. And so, uh, but we can be justified before God, declared righteous. No matter how sinful you are, you can be declared righteous before God. He says in verse number 8, but God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He says in verse 10, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his what? Not by your life, but by whose life? His life. And so that gives us a little clue. By the time you get down to the end of Romans chapter number 5, you have this great, uh, great, just great theme that's kind of building that we're justified by Faith, we have peace with God through his son. Uh, uh, God commended his love toward us while we were yet sinners. He died for us and he gives all men eternal life. And by the time you get down to the very last verse of chapter 5, you'll have read the word grace at least five times. You would have read the word gift at least five times. And somebody would read that and maybe think this, well, if I'm saved... And, uh, and I, I'm forever changed, and my home is now in heaven. No matter what I do, I'm reconciled and declare righteous before God. It's the free gift of salvation. Then I can probably just live however I want to live. And, and that's not right. And, and let me just tell you, Christian liberty is not living how you want to live. It's living how you and I ought to live. And so Paul battled that. You know what? None of our problems are new problems. There are people that think that today. Well, I'm saved. I'm born again. I can live how I want to live. You might be able to, but you'll be miserable and you won't be right with God. And so Paul battles that. That's what Romans chapter 6 is all about. He starts out in the first verse. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And what's the understood answer? God forbid. Because the Christian life is not about you living it, and it's about the Lord Jesus Christ living His life through you. You say, how does that work? Well, the Bible tells us, and I want to give us 
uh, three very simple points. The outline comes straight from our text tonight, and it's three simple words. The first one is no, K-N-O-W, no. The second one is reckon. Now, I like that. That's a good southern word. When I married my wife, she's from the Chicago area, and I would say, well, I reckon I would or I reckon I could, and she said, what in the world are you talking about? Either you are or you're not. You know, make up your mind. But reckon is a Bible word. And so, no, reckon, and then yield. It's a simple outline. And just hang with me. Point number one is technical. And, uh, and if we can get through point number one, the rest of it will sail smooth right through it. And so, uh, Paul says in verse number three, what's the first word? No. Down in verse number six, you see another form of the word knowing down in verse number nine you have another word knowing and so there's some things that Paul says you have to know now in your New Testament there's two primary words you read the word know and uh, there's two primary Greek words for that word know one of the words means this factual knowledge factual knowledge now factual knowledge is good knowledge we like to know factual knowledge. The other word for know is experiential knowledge. Now, you know there's a difference between factual knowledge and experiential knowledge. I love the Georgia mountains. I love to go up there and I love to find the waterfalls and and, uh, I like to find waterfalls wherever we go. Now, I could give you some facts about some waterfalls that I've been to. I can tell you how high they are. I can describe to you how the water comes cascading over the rocks and showers down and, and just splatters down on the rocks below. I could, I could probably do some scientific calculation and tell you factually how much water is coming over that fall at any given time. I could probably tell you how deep the pool is. I could describe to you the droplets and how the sun uh, shines through and makes a prism. I could describe all those things to you and you could absolutely know the facts, and that's one type of knowledge, but the other kind of knowledge is experiential knowledge. You say, well, what's the difference? Experiential knowledge is putting on your hiking boots, getting out of the truck, hiking to the waterfall, kicking your boots off, rolling up your pants legs, stepping down into the waterfall, and feeling that water come down and tumble over your head, and you can feel it, and you can smell it, and you see it, and you can see the prison for yourself, and you hear it all. That's experiential knowledge. This passage insinuates both of them. And Paul says there's some facts about your salvation that you need to understand or you need to know. And there's uh, actually three of them in this passage. He says in verse 3, he says, Know ye not that so many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. Now let me just confirm something right away. He's not referring to water baptism. That's not what he's referring to. The moment that you trusted Christ as your Savior, whether you were four or whether you were 40, you were baptized in to the body of Christ, and specifically that's made manifest through your membership in a New Testament visible local church like this one. But it's not referring to water baptism. But he says, know ye not that so many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in what? Newness of life. That's not your life, that's his life. And Paul says there's some facts that you need to understand and you need to know. And one of them, the first of them, is you have fellowship with the Son. 
Now, we, we would all say, okay, we understand that. But it's interesting to me, according to this passage, the Lord Jesus, he identifies with you in his life. His life, do you know the Lord Jesus, he knew what it was like to be tired? Do you know that he knew what it was like to be hungry? Do you know that he knew what it was like to betray, be betrayed by friends? Uh, do you know that the Lord Jesus Christ, he knew what it was like to be uh, ostracized by his own family and countrymen? And the writer of Hebrews says, We have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. He identifies with you in his life. He identifies with you in his death. Uh, the writer of Hebrews again said that the Lord Jesus Christ, he tasted death for every man. Eternal separation from God. Do you know the Lord Jesus, he tasted that for every man. Now that doesn't mean that every man saved. But that means that Jesus Christ has tasted what it's like to be separated fully from the Father. And he did that. And all who believe in Christ shall have the free gift of salvation and be saved. But he says, uh, you have fellowship with the Son. He identifies you with in his baptism, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. He identifies with you. The writer in Ephesians, Paul writes, and he says that we're, it's as if we're seated in heaven right now. That's how sure your salvation is. And Paul says it's just factual, but you need to understand and be reminded that you have fellowship with the Son. You say, why is that so important? Because none of us are near as lovable as we think we are. We're just not. I heard a preacher said one time, the best of men are men at best. And, uh, and we're just zeros with the edges rubbed off of them. And, uh, and compared to a holy and mighty and a righteous God, it ought to be a wonder to us that the Father's love is so deep and compassionate that He chooses to identify and fellowship with us. Paul says you have to understand and know that you have fellowship with the Son. Notice what he says in verse number 6. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that means the Lord Jesus, that the body of sin might be destroyed. Now, I circled that word destroyed in my Bible. It doesn't mean to be obliterated or blown up like you'd see on some action movie. The word destroyed has the idea of this, being made powerless. So the moment you trusted Christ as your Savior... You go from having one nature, a sinful nature, you're a new creature in Christ, now you have two natures, and the old man theologically, and I told you this is a little bit technical, the first point, the old man was crucified on the cross at Calvary with the Lord Jesus, and literally the old sinful man was made to be powerless. You say, why is this important? It just is. How many of you like to know how things work? You like to know how they work. Man, when I was a kid, I used to take stuff apart just to see what made it tick and what made it run. Now, there's some things, obviously, I don't care how it works. I just want to make it work. How many of you are that way? And so both are okay, but this is just kind of some theology. Paul's saying here some things you have to just understand. That number one, you have fellowship with the Son, but number two, you have freedom from sin. He says in verse 7, for he that is dead is what? Freed from Sin. And, uh, and the difference between a Christian, 
A person that's been born again that has two natures and a moral just man on the outside that has one nature is when I got saved, I am freed. The body of sin was made powerless and I am freed from the bondage of sin no matter what my life looks like on the outside. But this guy over here, no matter how good he lives, no matter how good his life looks on the outside, he's still not been set free from the bondage of sin. And Paul says there's some things that you have to know factually and in essence you'll know experientially. Number one, you have fellowship with the Son. Number two, you have freedom from sin. And then he says in verse number 8, Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. You say, okay, then why do I struggle? I mean, we have fellowship with the Son, and He identifies with us in all these ways, and, and I know that God's here to help us, and, and the Lord Jesus can give us victory. But how many of you, uh, uh, sometimes you, you don't walk in victory? We all struggle, we get frustrated, and, and uh, we have fellowship with the Son. We have freedom from sin. If the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. And so the question is, why do I still struggle sometimes with the old man or sin or selfishness or whatever you want to call it? Here's a good illustration. How many of you have ever had a dead battery before in your car? Uh, if you've been driving for long enough, it just happens. It never happens at a good time. It always happens when you're late or in a hurry and you had to be somewhere yesterday or, or it's at 11 o'clock at night in the Walmart parking lot and you're afraid to ask anybody for, for help. And so, but what do you do? How do you fix that dead battery? That dead, dead battery, if we want to use this word in verse number six, destroyed, it's been made powerless. So, so what do you got to do? Well, you got to get somebody with a good battery or a car and, and they pulled your car up beside, uh, they pulled theirs up beside yours and you pop the hood and make sure the jumper cables can reach the battery. And what you do is you hook those jumper cables up. Now, now, now teenagers, you got to learn how to hook it up right. You hook the black side up to the negative and the plus side up, that's the red side to the positive, and you match it on the other side. And what do you do? You give the old battery that is powerless, that's been destroyed. That's our word used here. And you know what you do? You give it life. You walk over to it and you purposely, you give it life. And you know the reason why we struggle with the sin nature? It's been crucified at Calvary. But you know what we do? We walk over to it with the proverbial jumper cables. And every time we choose to sin, we're actually trying to revive the dead, carnal, sinful man. And the, and the idea here is stop doing that. And Paul says you got to know how it works just a little bit and it'll help you. You have to know, number one, that you have fellowship with the Son. Number two, that you have freedom from sin. And then number four, you have to understand that your future is settled and secure. And so really, my problem should not be with the Word of God. The Word of God is perfect. My problem certainly shouldn't be with God and His sovereign, sovereign working in my life. And my problem really isn't with the devil. You know what my number one problem is? It's me because I keep trying to revive the old dead man that was crucified. I read about a, 
a very successful businessman who just got tired, tired of the ins and outs of work every day and just dealing with the personnel problems and the phone calls and putting out fires. And he said, man, I need a vacation. I need to get away from it all. And he paid a lot of money to go on vacation. Problem was he couldn't get away from his number one enemy himself. And really, Paul's saying you have to understand a little bit of this theology behind this. And point number one is no. And thank goodness we're done with point number one. That was the hard one. Let's move to point number two. So he says, in verse number 11, he says, Likewise, and there's our word, reckon. You know what it means? It means to calculate. It means to logically conclude. Guess what's coming up in just about two weeks? April the 15th. You know what that is? That's tax day. And hopefully by then, you know what? We've calculated, we've reckoned, we've added up all the totals. We've done what, what we had to do, but it's a mathematical term. And Paul is using it in a logical sort of way. And he says, likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be what? Dead. Dead. And, uh, and I think about this just a little bit, and we get frustrated because we're trying to live the Christian life, but the Christian life was never meant for you to live. Understand, it was meant for you to die, and when you die to yourself, the Lord Jesus can manifest and by His Spirit can begin to live His life through you. Theologically, it's called the Christ life or the resurrected life. You say, I haven't read any books about this at the Christian bookstore. You won't find one. You know what you'll find at the Christian bookstore? Books on how to make you a better you. Can I tell you, God's not concerned about making a better you or a better me. Christ and God is concerned about you dying to yourself, yielding yourself unto God, and Him living His life through your surrender. That is the Christian life or the Christ's life. But he says, reckon yourself to be what? Dead. Dead. That means you'll logically come to this conclusion. I'm dead. My old carnal man, which you don't know, owe anything to that old flesh, was crucified at Calvary and I am dead. It's interesting to think about this in application. Do you know that dead men have no rights? Somebody would say, well, bless God, you don't know my rights. What can I tell you? The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 19, What? No, you're not, no, you're not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and ye are not your own. You know what you were bought with? You were bought with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you know what we ought to do? Give him everything that he paid for. Well, you don't know my rights. Dead men have no rights. It's interesting to make this application. Dead men, you know what? We have no reputation. Uh, you know what a lot of men are worried about? Their reputation. Uh, Pastor Springer, I'm thankful for every church that we're privileged to preach in. But by, by and far, across the United States of America, you know what preachers are worried about more than anything else? Their reputation. Uh, what do I look like in the eyes of others? I've been in pastor's fellowships before, and the pastors kind of got this idea, and this isn't everybody, but, but some of them have this idea of, don't you know who I am? And I think to myself, no, and I really don't care. But you know what? We're all concerned about our rights and our what? 
our reputation. Dead men, they don't have a reputation. The Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of what? No reputation. You want to talk about somebody who could have used his position, who could have worked everything out and just orchestrated everything into his favor. If anybody could have, certainly the Lord Jesus could have. The song says he could have called 10,000 angels. But you know what he did? He made himself of no reputation. Dead men have no rights. They have no reputation. How about this? Here's a good application. Dead men have no resources. You say, Brother Thomas, I've worked hard for everything that I've got. I'm glad you did. But according to the Scriptures, you know who gives men power to make wealth? God. Uh, Do you know who sovereignly put people in your path that could help you find your way, help you take that next step? You know who did that? God did it. You say, but I got a lot. I got a lot. I got a house. I got a retirement. I got it all. You know who it really belongs to? It belongs to God. And life and ministry is not something that you build as much as it's something that you steward. And dead men have no resources. All of it belongs to God. The psalmist uh, says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. You know those grandchildren that you have? You know who they belong to? They're the Lord's. Uh, Parents, those beautiful children that you have, you know who they belong to? They belong to the Lord. Yes, I understand we say those are my children, but guess who gave them to you? God gave them to you. So think about that. Think about that. Have you ever heard somebody talk to your child and you think, boy, they don't need to be talking to my child that way. You know, maybe sometimes that'll put us in check when we talk to our children. You know who we're really talking to? We're talking to God's children and we need to be good stewards. Dead men have uh, no resources. About two years ago, uh, we were replacing our truck and trailer. We had... Uh, wore the other truck out. It was a half a truck anyway. It was a Chevrolet. And uh, it was a 2004 Chevy Duramax. And you ladies, just bear with me. Us men just need to have a moment here. And so we bought this Chevy Duramax. And it was an old truck when we got it. And, uh, and we didn't pay a whole lot of money for it. It had over 200,000 miles on it. And we pulled our first trailer for about six years with that truck. We got just about 400,000 miles on that truck. And we had a coolant leak which on a diesel, if you don't know how to make that repair, it's pretty expensive. And so I wanted to use that as an excuse to go truck shopping, you know. And uh, we need to update our tools, honey. And so we start looking. And I'm looking for Ford, Chevrolet, Dodge. I'm looking for a dually, and I'm looking for mileage. I want a certain mileage, and I want four-wheel drive. I don't care if it has leather. I don't care any about that stuff. And, uh, And the Lord allowed me to buy a Ford. And, uh, and, and this Ford popped up. My wife, she's shopping around, and we're looking. And uh, she found this truck. She says, honey, here's a nice truck. It looks like it might be in our price range. And uh, it's down in Atlanta, Georgia. We were in Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, I thought, well, I'll drive down there if they got it. And you can tell by the picture that the dealership took it. It was at a Nissan dealership. Somebody had traded it in. It had kind of the farm dirt all over the, the bed, you know, where somebody hadn't washed it in a while. And they just took a quick picture and put it up online. And I called them and I said, is that truck still available? And they said, yeah, we just got it in. We're going to get it cleaned up tomorrow. I said, will you hold it for, for me? I'm in Nashville. 
Nashville. They said, no, we won't hold it for you. But if you call and tell us that you're coming to get it tomorrow, we'll make sure it's cleaned up and ready. And so I said, well, I'll be coming. And so anyway, I made my way down to Atlanta. It's interesting. I sold our Chevrolet for cash that morning. And so I rented a car to drive to Atlanta. And so I don't know if that was the wisest decision or not, but the truck was a really good price. And, uh, and I thought, worst comes to worst, you know, we'll do something else. And I got down there, and, uh, and they had the truck all cleaned up. Now, again, ladies, just give us a moment here. It's a 2014 F350 Platinum Edition. And, uh, and when it was in the parking lot there, it had a little bit bigger tires. Whoever traded it in had a little bit bigger tires. So it was sitting up off the ground. It's got six tires. It's a big truck. And I pull into the parking lot, and I'm like, there she is. And I'm salivating. I mean, it's a platinum, you know. I don't need any of that. And, and, uh, but I'm glad to have it, you know. And I go into the dealership, and the salesman said, here's the keys. I'm busy right now. Take your time. Crawl up underneath it. Take it around the block. Do whatever you want to do. Just, just, just look over the truck. And I walk out there, and I'm like, man, this is a beautiful truck. And it had 190,000 miles on it, but whoever took care of it, they, they did a good job. And so I started that truck up. Whoa, 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 whoa. And I'm like, oh, yeah, this is going to be a really good truck. And I'm driving it around, and it's making all kinds of racket. And, and sometimes diesels will do that. They just kind of snort and blow and whistle. And, and I'm thinking, is this supposed to make all these kind of sounds? And, and I call up my mechanic. He says, sounds like you got a pretty good truck. And I said, man, I'm, I'm buying this truck. And I was riding high, wide, and handsome. And so I drove that truck home late that night from Atlanta up to Nashville, and I called my wife, and I say, you won't believe this truck. This is a wonderful truck. I mean, it's just so, it's so powerful, and, and there's so much room in the back seat, and it's just, it's just a really, really awesome truck. You know what happened about three days later? I had to put a radiator in it. And I thought, well, we got a good deal in the truck, so I mean, it's used, and so I have to understand. You know what happened a few, uh, about a week or so after that? I was driving it from Darlington, South Carolina, up to Roanoke, Virginia, and I got exactly halfway in Greensboro, and I heard some unusual noise underneath the hood, and the engine just lost about 80% of its power. And I pulled it off the road, and I'm like, man, I'm scratching my head. I'm still really proud about this truck, you know. And, and I think, boy, this can't be happening. And I, I call a diesel shop. I look them up on Google Maps and said, yeah, I'm just about eight miles from you, and my truck just doesn't have any power. If I get it to you, can you take a look at it? And they say, well, of course, yeah, if you can get it to us. And so I get it there and pull in the garage, and they pop the hood, and they pull the air cleaner off, and they said, yep. And I said, what is it? They said, turbo. I said, that doesn't sound cheap. They said, it's not cheap. And, uh, and they shine a flashlight. You can see where the little fan, fan, fan blades have been grinded off. You're going to have to do it, give it a new turbo. And I'm thinking, man. And, uh, and I was going to a preacher's uh, fellowship, a, a men's prayer fellowship. And, and, I, and I went. I just told my wife, I think the Lord wants me to go. And I got there. And the preacher was preaching along these lines of God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And God owns everything. And it, it occurred to me while I was sitting in that service that that F-350, that 2014 F-350 that has a blown turbo, it doesn't belong to me. You know who it belongs to? It belongs to the Lord. Now, that helped me in a tremendous way. It maybe wouldn't have helped you, but it helped me. I said, Lord, your truck is in Greensboro, North Carolina with a turbo blown up on it. And I'll do whatever you want me to do, but that's your truck. And I want to be a good steward of your truck, and you just lead me in how to do it. And ultimately, the Lord took care of everything, but you know what? In reality, it's all His. And dead men have no resources. Dead men have 
no resentments. We talked a little bit last night about bitterness. You know what? A dead person's not going to be bitter. A dead person's not going to hold a grudge. A dead person's not going to have any resentments at all. A dead person has no restraints. You know, there's a lot of believers out there that say, well, I would serve the Lord if I was retired. I would serve the Lord if I had time. I would serve the Lord if I had a talent in this ability. I would serve the Lord, but I don't have this, and I don't have that. And can I encourage you, God's not concerned about what you don't have as much as God's concerned about what you don't do have. But guess what? Dead men have no restraints. We're not holding back anything. If you're dead, you let it all go. That's why Paul would say in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, what? A living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. And then he says this, for this is your reasonable service. He gave everything for you. He lived his life, a perfect sinless life. He died one of the cruelest, most torturous deaths any man could ever die. And he did it for you and he did it for me. He shed his red royal blood. He bought you with a price, the precious blood of Christ. And it just makes logical sense to reckon myself dead. And so Paul says there's some things that you need, number one, to know. Number two, you reckon yourself to be dead, the scripture says, indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through, get it, through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the game changer. This will help you when you read your New Testament. It will shed a new light on your spiritual life. You think about Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Now notice what Paul says there. He says, I am, what, crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. As you crucify, you, you, you consider yourself dead, you reckon yourself to be dead, then the Lord Jesus, he begins to live his life through you. Ephesians 3 and verse 20 says, Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think. We say, boy, that's talking about our prayer life. No, it's not. It says, according to the power that worketh in us. You know what that is? That's the power, the same power that resurrected the Lord Jesus Christ out of the grave. And could you just tell me for a moment how many believers are tapping in to that kind of power in their spiritual life? Not many. You know why? Because we're trying to live the Christian life rather than let the Lord Jesus live it through us. It's the Christ life. Paul says you need to reckon yourself to be dead. He says in verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are what? Alive from the dead. So point number one is no. Point number two is reckon. Point number three is yield. Now what does yield mean? It means to make a way for. It means to give place to. It means to surrender or to supply. Now, when I was 15 years old, I took 
I, I took a driving class, and it was in the public school. It was driver's education. How many of you remember driver's education? And it was in the public school. And in North Carolina, I don't know if it's the same in Georgia, but in North Carolina, they taught you, they specifically, I remember our instructor taught us that when you're merging onto another lane, onto highway traffic or interstate traffic, what you need to do is you need to be looking maybe over your shoulder or in your mirror, and you need to gauge how fast everybody's going. And if they're going really, really fast and you're not able to get in, then you're either going to have to speed up or you're going to have to slow down, and it's your job to yield to the flow of traffic. Is that what the rule is in Georgia? I'm not sure if that's the rule or not. I can tell you around most of this country, people don't obey that rule. And so I'm driving down the road, and I'm the guy that everybody loves to hate. I'm about 65 feet long, and I'm doing five miles an hour slower than traffic. I'm in the slow lane, and I can just, I can every time, the cars are coming this way. They're merging on to traffic. If I can move over, I, I love to move over. I love to move over and let those people in, but many times I can't move over, and they're coming, and I can tell. I can just glance to the right, and they don't know whether they're going to speed up or slow down. And you know who they get mad at? Me. And I'm thinking to myself, people, I'm not supposed to yield to you. You're supposed to yield to me. And you know what? We laugh at that. But you know, that's how we think it's supposed to be with God. We, we say, Lord, uh, you're supposed to yield to me. Lord, I want you to take this sickness away from my life. Well, he might, he might not. We know what God wants, or we know what we want, but we, we, we need to know what he wants. And, uh, and we, we, we pray these problem-centered prayers. Lord, take this problem away. Uh, uh, take this away. Take that away. And take this away. And we say, basically we're saying, Lord, you need to yield yourself to me. But in reality, you know what we're supposed to be doing? Yielding ourselves to him. That's what the Bible says. Yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of unrighteousness to God. Many, many people will say, I will live for the Lord Jesus. I'm not concerned about who will live for him. I'm concerned about who will die for him. You say, preacher, you make it sound like God's trying to hurt me. He's not trying to hurt you. He's trying to kill you. And once you see yourself and reckon yourself to be dead, then that resurrection power can take hold in your life and you'll be able to see things and see them how the Lord Jesus sees them and you'll be able to pray with power and you'll be able to witness with power and you'll have a powerful testimony, but not until you choose to die. My question this evening is, are you dead yet? Are you frustrated with a Christian life? You say, boy, I really... I kind of plateaued a long time ago and I've been trying to do this and, and trying to do that. You know what you just really need to do? You need to have a funeral for yourself. Reckon yourself to be dead. I heard a story years ago about a, a kindergarten class. And uh, right in the middle of the year, uh, one of the students, one of the classmates, had a terrible car accident and was killed in a car accident. And so the teacher was concerned about her students. Of course, you know, you got these young kids and now one of their classmates isn't showing up for school every day and there's questions. And, and so she was concerned about them. And so she had them pull out a piece of paper and write just a sentence on what death meant to them. And so simple assignment. And so they did it and they turned their paper in. And uh, she was reading through them and she came across this one paper and the child, the child wrote this, death is a very scary thing. 
The only people who are not afraid to die are those who are already dead. My question tonight, are you dead yet? Uh, Is the Christian life, is it a struggle for you? Uh, Is it frustrating? Does it seem like the flesh always wins? Well, quit taking the jumper cables over there and trying to make the old flesh, give it power, leave it alone and reckon yourself to be dead. And then you know what you do? You yield your life, your members, your thoughts, your physical, everything. You yield it unto God and then the Lord takes over. Are you dead yet? Would you bow with me in prayer, please? You're here this evening and you would say, Preacher, there's some things I need to die to. Matter of fact, I've been pretty selfish. And I need to reckon myself to be dead. And tonight I want to yield myself unto the Lord. And I want to ask you, if you want to make that decision tonight, would you just raise your hand and say, I'm going to reckon myself to be dead.